to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to this week's American Bar Association Cyber and Privacy Podcast, The New Frontier, in affiliation with the Thomas R. Klein School of Law at Drexel University. This is your host, Jordan Fisher, and I am very excited to welcome this week's guest, Ben Green, from the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, Jordan. It's great to be uh, talking with you today. Um, can you introduce yourself to the audience, what you're currently working on in your role? Yeah, so I'm a postdoc at the University of Michigan based in the Ford School of Public Policy and the Society of Fellows. And my work looks at government use of algorithms in the United States. And I'm, so I'm really interested in how governments are using data science tools uh, and what the implications of those tools are. And I'm particularly interested in you know, the gap between how we tend to think about and design these tools and the impacts that they have in practice. Um, so really looking to you know, what are the effects that algorithms have when they're used by uh, government agencies and how can we improve those impacts? That's really fascinating and a really sort of hot issue I feel right now in a lot of conversations. I want to start though very broadly because I think a lot of people come to sort of this conversation from varying degrees of understanding of sort of algorithms and the government usage of it. So if you can maybe set the scene of sort of what are algorithms, what is sort of artificial intelligence that might be supporting those algorithms, or at least provide a high-level overview. You know, I think maybe we need multiple hours to actually really understand <laughs> that, but at least get, give our listeners that high-level overview. Yeah. So, you know, so I think AI is sort of this broad, uh, almost marketing term that has ceased to have very specific meaning, sort of. So I think it's, you know, when we're thinking about government algorithms, typically what we usually mean are machine learning systems. So machine learning is really about how computers can detect patterns from data in order to make predictions or classifications about novel cases. So in a typical example of machine learning, you'd have some set of what's known as training data, um, historical data about a set of examples, you know, a typical instance of that might be, you know, a spam filter. You have lots of emails and you, some are labeled as spam and some are labeled as not spam. And the goal of machine learning is to sort of determine the patterns of what are, what attributes mark an email as spam or not spam so that it can classify new emails that it hasn't seen before that weren't part of that training set. So that's, uh, that's sort of the basics of what machine learning is doing. And, and when we talk, at least when I talk about algorithms in public policy, usually I'm talking about those types of systems, algorithms that have taken some historical data set, tried to detect some patterns within that data set, and then is being used. Uh, those, those patterns are then being used to classify or make predictions about the future, typically about uh, individuals, you know, citizens or residents within a particular jurisdiction. 
Yeah, and that's really helpful, I think, to provide that context. Um, and I completely agree with you. I think AI, machine learning, these are like buzzwords that we all hear, we see as you know headlines, et cetera. And it really is important to sort of dive in and sort of understand, you know, what are sort of the potential risks with these types of technologies? What are the benefits? You know, I realize this can be very um, use case specific, but I think it's helpful so that we can sort of understand why there's sort of a policy conversation around this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, and even to that point about sort of the broad meanings, I think there's a, you know, a level of risk involved in that where these these terms take on an almost mystical uh, meaning, especially among many policymakers in the public who don't necessarily have a sense of what the technology is actually doing. I mean, so so even just on that level of how especially a term like AI is thrown around, uh, often to suggest, you know, these incredible futuristic outcomes, uh, you know, and at the end of the day, it's often something either that's impossible to, to achieve, and it could even be something that's actually very simple. Uh, and they're using this fancy term to dress up what is actually like a really basic use of statistics. Um, and so in either case, we should be more aware of what that actually is. It's something really basic that's actually easy and not that novel, or this is actually something that's impossible or years down the road from being able to be achieved. And, you know, you're just convincing us because that's good for, you know, creating a market for a particular service or product. Um, But, you know, so broadly, there's sort of a range of different potential benefits and risks. So the reason that uh, agencies turn to machine learning algorithms is, you know, a combination of uh, desires for objectivity, for fairness, for efficiency. Uh, There's the idea that algorithms can make decisions based on data and so that those decisions or predictions will be more accurate and more objective than the decisions made by human decision makers. Um, But there are also a lot of risks associated with these tools um, around around discrimination, around how these tools often are, you know, rather than sort of uh, acting as this sort of completely distinct form of decision making from what humans are doing actually picking up on many of the biases of human decision makers and even many of the inequalities that exist in society. And so essentially, you know, just reproducing the forms of of bias and inequality that already exist rather than eradicating those in any way. Um, There can be issues around sort of just the unreliability of these tools. Often uh, we don't actually know what they're doing, often in part because of this broader marketing angle around it. Uh, agencies adopt tools that don't actually work that well and that they don't test that well. So there's a certain lack of scrutiny that's often placed into them at the adoption stage. And so uh, we have often tools in practice that don't really work. We don't know how well they work because they haven't been tested. Often there are uh, the systems are sort of proprietary to the companies that have created them. And so it's actually very difficult for even courts, let alone the public, to get information about how these tools work, be able to audit them, and so on. Um, so, you know, so that's sort of just a quick overview of some of the, yeah, potential risks that have arisen in different examples of what these tools are actually doing in practice. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, it's 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 funny. I was I was laughing a little bit because I was thinking to myself when you were talking how I think there's this excitement that AI and machine learning are going to save us all, right? They're going to mm-hmm. fix what we ourselves as humans can't fix. They're going to take over that human error. But I think it's a really critical point that you make that somebody is training the AI or the machine learning. Someone is inputting that data and making a decision. So we can't 
we can't really separate out the human from it because it's an inherent part of the technology. Um, so I think it's like a really good point to hammer home that yes, there's ways we can leverage it, but I think it's being a thoughtful user of it that is really key and sort of why would we use this over a different tool and what can this add to that conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, and just wanna, to, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, just to jump in on that, I mean, I think two things that are really important that you're touching on, uh, you know, right, so there's sort of humans throughout this entire process and, you know, Often it's, we talk about how the data is biased, right? The data doesn't reflect the underlying reality. We might have, you know, biased policing practices, for instance, that overestimate crime in black neighborhoods or low income neighborhoods relative to white or high income neighborhoods. And that's absolutely true. But we also have the issues of, even if the data is accurate, that accurate information is just going to be depicting the inequalities that already exist. So, you know, we can talk about biased data and that's a huge problem. There's that, you know, something that should be fixed. But even if we had perfectly accurate data, we wouldn't really solve the problem because all we would then be reproducing are the the inequalities that already exist because of past and present forms of discrimination. So I think that's an important uh, sort of distinction to make around accurate and inaccurate data. And then the second piece is, yeah, why this tool compared to another tool? And I think that a lot of, when I think of the harms of a lot of government algorithmic systems, it's not just that the tools uh, fail in and of themselves or are flawed or biased. It's also that these tools are often preventing us from pursuing other types of reforms. Often there's sort of this myopic debate between, oh, well, let's use this algorithm. You don't like this algorithm, but isn't it better than the status quo? Like, why should we, you know, do what we're already doing? Like, this algorithm's better than that. And I think, you know, there are many responses, but I think the my best, my main response to that debate is just to say, that's actually not the only option. We have, you know, if I say this algorithm is bad, it's not to say that the status quo is great. It's depending on the situation, but it's probably bad in a lot of the situations where we're trying to use algorithms. But there's just other reforms that we can pursue that are going to be more effective. And there might be a role for algorithms within those reforms. But the typical type of algorithmic intervention that says we're just going to make these predictions that a human has typically been making with an algorithm and then call it a day and say that we've achieved progress and we've achieved fairness within this system is is not an effective strategy for actually, you know, achieving goals of equality. And so that that question, it's really important to have that question front and center around what reforms can we consider and how can we decide which reforms are going to be most effective rather than treating it as, you know, we can have this one specific algorithm or we can do nothing because I think that just is a, is a dead end that leads us to a lot of bad decisions. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm reminded of a phrase that I'm told quite often in my life, which is better doesn't mean good. That doesn't mean that is like sort of the solution that we should go towards. But I am curious from your perspective, sort of what you're seeing in your research and working and, and sort of viewing what's going on, especially at that governmental level. You know, what are the potential solutions to address sort of these challenges that we're seeing in using algorithms and machine learning and AI you know, we've seen some regulatory proposals, especially out of the European Union with its recently proposed AI regulation. There's a lot of conversations of sort of how do we sort of, you know, address this sort of, is it human oversight? Is it other other things that we can do? So I think I'm curious, like from your perspective, how should we be 
maybe addressing this or at least thinking about how to address it, right? We might not actually have solutions that we can propose at this time. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no quick fix solutions. And, you know, I think the first thing to, to recognize is that the solutions that we can come up with or the, the appropriate remedies, I think, is a better word than solutions because we can never really solve these types of issues. But uh, it's, they're not going to be purely technical in nature, right? We can't just find some sort of better way of developing algorithms or better way of collecting data that's going to get rid of all of these problems. And I think that, you know, there, there are improvements we can make, but, you know, it's really important to sort of recognize that at the start because a lot of work in computer science, uh, you know, does sort of take a pretty narrow lens on how the algorithm operates alone, uh, sort of as this isolated technical artifact, supposing that we could achieve ideals like ethics or fairness within the scope of an algorithm on its own, which just doesn't really make sense, especially when you start looking at the types of policy interventions that algorithms are making and how they're embedded within existing systems. Um, so I think, you know, I, yeah, I mean, a, a significant path forward is going to be on, on regulation. Uh, it's going to be on more thoughtful design and, and sort of a broader, almost sort of political reimagination of how are we using these tools and what types of reforms do we actually want to pursue with them, um, I think is a really significant. And that is, is in many ways sort of a, a, an effort of social movements and political organizing and sort of changing the terms of who gets to decide what algorithms governments are going to adopt and what do they get used for and what forms of oversight are, are going to exist among those. And then yeah, and then I think for regulation, a lot of what I think about is, and even the, the implementation stages, how can we really make sure that we're being thoughtful about what the implementation and use of these tools actually look like so that our efforts to make improvements can actually be effective? You know, if we don't understand how these tools operate in practice, we can't design them better and we can't regulate them because we're actually not seeing potentially where some of the issues or harms are coming up in. Um, and so one of the main areas I've been looking at there has been on human use of algorithms and looking at, you know, we can characterize an algorithm by, you know, looking at statistics of accuracy and fairness and so on, all of the typical things a computer scientist would do. But what's actually happening is that those these algorithms, whether in child welfare or pretrial risk assessments or, uh, you know, welfare fraud are typically, they're being shown to a human and then that person has to then incorporate the algorithm into their decision or decide whether to follow or ignore it. And so it's important to really study what is that person doing? How is the algorithm actually uh, affecting people's behavior? And then on the, on the other end of that, from a regulatory standpoint, seeing you know, what, what does that interaction look like and where does human oversight fall short? So one of the major ways that regulators across the world, and this includes the AI Act that the EU uh, posted the draft of, or the proposal draft yeah, earlier this, uh, around April or so, you know, puts this central mechanism on human oversight for algorithms, you know, as long as there's a human making the final decision or mm -hmm. reviewing the algorithm's output, then it seems fine to use the system and actually all of the empirical research that we have pretty consistently shows that people can't do that. People are not able 
to evaluate the quality of algorithms in the way that all of these policies like the AI Act suppose. And so that's an instance where I think there's a really nice role for technical research and legal analysis to come together to say, how can we create better regulations that actually provide better protections for the subjects of algorithms and actually in, you know, provide more robust guarantees or probably likelihoods that will get fair and accurate and responsible decisions uh, rather than, you know, putting in regulations that make us feel better and give us the impression that the problem will be solved, but actually don't do that, which in some ways is the worst outcome. Because, you know, if you have the, if you think a problem is solved, but it's actually not, not only is the problem ongoing, you also don't realize, at least for some period of time, potentially, that you need to be doing something to, to find remedies. No, it's, re- it's really interesting. Um, you know, I was thinking to myself when you're talking about the black box earlier, and when you're saying sort of how we as humans can leverage the AI, it's really hard to do when we might not even understand <laughs> the AI. And I think for a lot of people, that's a big ask, right? We see this a lot in sort of the privacy and security context where it's like you have to give informed consent to the usage of sort of these, these technologies. And it's like, are we expecting the average person to really be informed as to what is going on under that in that black box in that sort of under that hood that's often protected by IP protections or business confidentiality, et cetera? Um, so I think that's a really interesting question and will be very challenging to solve because you know explaining highly technical uses tools is is hard to do, especially if you're not in this space. Um, but one other thing that I thought of when you were talking is you know, taking a term from the EU under privacy law, you know, privacy impact assessment, which is is often required if you're going to be doing something that, that could have sort of a high risk to the individual around their privacy rights. And it's almost like we need an AI or a machine learning or algorithmic impact assessment that we sort of force companies and governments to do to at least demonstrate a thoughtful usage of the tool. I don't know if that's something that's been thrown around, but as you were talking, I sort of was thinking that would be a really great sort of way to start at least forcing the conversation earlier into the usage than waiting and we realize there might be challenges or or problems with it. Yeah. So there's been sort of a building momentum and discussion around processes like algorithmic or AI impact assessments. And I think that that's uh, an important place to move forward in, in terms of, you know, I think about it in terms of moving some of the evaluation and scrutiny of these systems upstream in terms of even, you know, before and really prompting particularly government agencies to do some of this analysis before they're adopting a system and to really think about, you know, are there red lines that we shouldn't even be crossing, right? I mean, certain applications like facial recognition are things that a lot of, uh, you know, human rights and civil rights advocates and, and other communities have said, it doesn't matter how accurate the tool is. You know, this is not something that governments should be doing. So there's those types of considerations. Even beyond that, there are considerations of whether a particular decision or process can is appropriate for algorithmic decision-making. Algorithms provide a particular type of advice grounded in, you know, predicting a certain type of outcome based on a certain type of data. But often, you know, decisions that policymakers or street-level bureaucrats are making are not so simple that can be boiled down into prediction problems. Even if there's a predictive element, they might be, you know, predicting the likelihood of, you know, someone 
not appearing in court, but they're also want to ensure that that person has rights if, you know, before trial, that they're released, that they have the ability to mount a proper defense, that they're, you know, able to play a role in their community and so on. So there's this, you know, balancing act of, you know, yes, there's one outcome of interest that can be predicted, but the actual decision is not a prediction problem. It's, you know, that likelihood is just one factor of many that the decision maker needs to consider. And so here we have ideals around discretion and sort of individual evaluation of specific cases. And in those types of instances, it's not clear that algorithms actually can improve the decisions, even if they can be more, you know, even if they can be accurate and improve the accuracy of predictions. So there's those types of evaluations that you know, I think an algorithmic impact assessment would, could front load and say, you know, government agency, you need to be sort of affirmatively asserting and justifying the use of a system beforehand along these grounds. And even uh, also really thinking about how would we put this into practice? How would it interact with a human? What sorts of human collaboration or human oversight do we want to see? And is there evidence that that type of collaboration can actually work in practice. And because a lot of what you see today is, you know, these policies that put human oversight as one of, if not the central protection mechanism. And then when something goes wrong, the blame ends up falling on the frontline human staff who ends up being supposed to be the human overseer. And this is true, not just in government cases, but sort of in general. And we've seen that with self-driving cars, where the you know, the human operator who's supposed to be monitoring the system gets the blame for what is really a design and system failure. And we see that similarly in government cases with facial recognition and others where the blame falls onto, you know, the algorithm almost becomes blameless and the agency leaders and the vendors become blameless because they get to say, well, it was the human overseer who didn't do their job. The system even if the system was wrong, it was the human overseer's job to detect and fix that. And so there's this way that accountability gets shifted away from the actors who are actually making these structural level decisions that are affecting the outcomes, such as agency leaders and vendors. And it gets put on the front level staff who have relatively low levels of agency and power and security relative to the and actual you know, and are, are not really that responsible for the outcome in questions. Uh, and so, you know, putting these types of impact assessments at the front loaded at the early stage, I think could also help to sort of bring a little bit of that lens of accountability back to the agencies because they have been sort of forced to affirmatively justify uh, why they're using these system, why they think it might be beneficial. And ideally that type of process should be open to some level of public debate, transparency, you know, meetings at city council or whatever the appropriate sort of jurisdictional process would be so that there's also a process of, of discussion and public input even into those sorts of impact assessments and plans uh, to shape what the path looks like. You know, one other component that you were talking about that you were sort of hammering home is sort of that responsibility. And I really do think that's where the law, at, both from a regulatory perspective and maybe also from cases that are most likely going to be brought in these sort of 
worst case outcomes that we see is really going to play a role in helping to sort of flesh out who do we as a society want to be responsible? Do we want the developer? Do we want the company who is, you know, deciding and to use this technology? Do we want the user who's, you know, having that oversight? And I, and I think it's an unknown right now, at least from what I've seen, is that we don't necessarily have answers to those. And we're going to have to sort of wait to see how both from a legislative perspective but then also from like a, a, a court legal perspective, we end up focusing on that. Yeah, and I think it's it's both an element of being unknown and also a significant element of we have some sense of who should and should not be responsible, but it just takes a lot of work to actually make that happen, right? Like the we there's you know the there should be more responsibility that's falling on the vendors and falling on the agencies and uh right now there's just a lot of things that shield that type of accountability from actually being in place um and so i think that's that's sort of the, one of the main significant uphill battles is how do we move decision making authority from those those actors into being much more in the hands of the public and as part of that process how can we then shift the allocation of responsibility and accountability for harms back onto the, you know, actors like agency leaders and vendors. And we sort of have the opposite situation right now where the public has very little control, uh, you know, agencies and vendors get to make pretty autonomous decisions. And then the harms essentially only fall on the public and there's, you know, they deal with those harms, but there's not much accountability for anyone who's responsible for those. So there's a little bit of just flipping the dynamic, really the power dynamic here. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there are sort of intricacies in terms of law and regulation that are a little bit more complicated than what I'm saying. But I think in broad strokes, the the real challenge here is, is just there's a significant power shift that needs to happen. Um, and that that takes work because, you know, the the groups that are in power and have the ability to make these decisions and avoid accountability, uh, they don't want to give up their authority and face more accountability, right? That's not something that just, you know, they're just happy to do. Um, so I think that's, that's you know, sort of one of the major sort of points of contestation moving forward with all of this. No, and I think that's a, this, this is a fascinating sort of area. And I think you highlighting where we're going to maybe potentially see some evolution is really key. So Ben, I am incredibly appreciative of you coming on today. This was a fascinating conversation. I always like to end um, these episodes with one final question for all of our listeners. And that is, what is the most recent book you've read on cyber, privacy, technology, law that you would recommend to our audience? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one book that I would recommend strongly is Ari Waldman's book, Industry Unbound. Um, just came out a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two ago. Ari's a professor of law and computer science at Northeastern, and he spent a couple of years, I think, doing an ethnography inside of technology companies, looking at what does privacy look like on the inside and really seeing how, you know, he really describes how, you know, privacy policies have been leveraged into sort of these very checkbox processes inside of companies. And often even the people who work inside tech companies and, and have a mandate to work on privacy don't realize the extent to which uh, a lot of privacy efforts are 
relatively superficial and really leaving the general sort of status quo and power dynamic in place um, rather than giving fun, you know, shifting rights and power over to the public in terms of more control over data. Um, and, and he has a really nice piece in, uh, in Slate as well, sort of a short, uh, very accessible summary of the book for people who just sort of want to get that. But I think that's a really nice look at what does privacy actually look like on the ground and what are the limits of, of what's going on and the gaps between potentially what the law might say and what actually happens or the ways in which the law gets wielded to, you know, not actually provide the public with many protections. Well, that's definitely one I'm going to add to my list because it sounds fascinating. Um, ben, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.